Okay, so if we've never met before, my name is Adam, and I am the lead pastor of Highway as of uh, two weeks ago, <laughs> and, and I'm still around. You haven't kicked me out yet, and I'm really excited that I, I'm sort of coming in on the holiday season. Uh, we're starting to think about Advent season, Christmas, how we're going to celebrate as a church, and Thanksgiving's this week, so I'm really curious. Uh, I, I'm just curious. There's two kinds of groups in this in this room today. Uh, how many of you would say that you're sort of like an uh, an early Christmas celebrator? That you're sort of getting some trees out. You're listening to some Bing Crosby already, and you're just ready to go. How many of you? Yep. You've been lit. Some of you. Yep. Okay. Yep. I get you. My wife is like that. We've got some trees in our house. Uh, how many of you though are like sticklers, and you're like no. We cannot allow anything to be decorated till Thanksgiving's over. That's right. That's right. People of principle, you say that is not right. That is not how we do things. Uh, today, I want to talk about that phrase. That is not right. I want you to think about that phrase as we go through uh, this sermon. Uh, first, uh, I, I just want to thank you for, for what you did on Friday. Jana already mentioned this. Last week, we talked about being a house of prayer. We talked about Jesus getting enraged because of the way the temple had become corrupted. That people were longing to connect with God. That was the purpose of the temple. And, God, and Jesus uh, got enraged because it had been corrupted. And this is what we want highway to be. We want this to be a place where, where people can come and connect with God. And so a group of us prayed for 24 hours straight on Friday. And I hope, hope it was meaningful for you. I loved it so, so much. I was up at 2 a.m. with no coffee. And uh, believe it or not, I thought it was so great. And some of you put down words or phrases that you felt God was telling you. And as I just read through those, I was just blessed over and over again. But today we're going to talk about that uh, we want this to be a house of prayer, but it doesn't stop there. So I want to start by asking a question. Uh, do you know where you were on April 20th, 1999? 1999. Uh, in 1999, I was a freshman in high school. Now, the funny thing about being an intergenerational church is some of you are saying, you were a freshman in high school? You are so young. And that makes me feel really good. <laughs> like, I think to myself, yeah, I'm sort of vibrant and alive. I'm sort of cool. Uh, but there, there are other people in this room who say, 1999, I wasn't even born in 1999. You are so old. And I say, you are also correct. Uh, because every morning I wake up and I say, why does my back hurt so much? Uh, two things can be true at the same moment. Uh, I, I have some pictures to help set some context here. This was 1999. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's what happens to my hair when it grows long. Hopefully I can keep that around for a while. Uh, and my favorite is the football picture because I look at it, I'm like, why were you so mad? <laughs> Who are you trying to impress there? Uh, this is 1999, April 20th. I was at school and I started hearing whispers uh, from my classmates. This was before the smartphone era. And uh, they, they spoke of this event that had never happened before, at least to this level. And I got home that day and I turned on the TV and I realized that the whispers were right. Uh, I read about these two high schoolers in a suburb of, of Colorado called Columbine, about my age, who had walked into their school and they had performed a, a massacre. And it was like, it was like mind-numbing. It was hard to comprehend. It was shocking. I couldn't believe it. 
But that was then, right? Uh, now it's not shocking at all. We're used to these kind of incidents. My two oldest kids are seven and nine, and multiple times in the year, if you have kids, you know this, my kids have to perform a run and hide drill. And the first time they told me that, it was just like mind-blowing, but of course, they have to be prepared for these incidents that happen over and over again. And if you're anything like me, I think most of us, when we hear about these incidents, we, we just say over and over again, this is not right deep in our bones, it just kills us because we we know that this should not be happening to the most vulnerable part of our society. But there's this phrase that gets tossed around sometimes. Sometimes it's tossed around by Christians, not all Christians, sometimes by politicians, sometimes by leaders. And many of you will know what phrase I'm, I'm even referring to right now. It's the phrase thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. And it's become like a pretty con- uh, controversial phrase. Why? I think it's because deep in our bones, we know that's not enough. That's not enough. And unfortunately, Christians can be known for this reality. Christians could be known for sort of living in a spiritual bubble, praying and hoping, but not engaging. Uh, some of you will know about this, but uh, in the 60s, middle of the civil rights era, Martin Luther King uh, was in a Birmingham jail. And he wrote this letter to, to people like me, uh, to pastors, uh, specifically white pastors. And he was sort of calling out this, this concept that uh, these churches were sort of in a spiritual bubble but weren't standing up for what is right. And at one point in this letter, uh, he, he writes this, there was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. And things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. And that's the tension and problem, right? So many of us, we, we see the church and we wonder Is it a church that actually stands up for things that are good? I've worked with young adults for many years now, and so many of them are disillusioned with the church. They say, you you say the right things, you might believe the right things, but it's actually helping you do things in the world. So today, that's what we want to talk about. When we talk about being a house of prayer, is this what we mean? When we talk about Jesus, is this what we mean? Are we a group of people that stay in a spiritual bubble, and we pray and we hope, but we don't actually engage. So uh, let's dive into our text again that we talked about last week. And if you were here, you can remember uh, that this was taking place in Jerusalem, and people were flocking to the temple. This is sort of like Disneyland. Uh, Jewish and Gentile folks were coming to the temple and trying to connect with God. And then we see this in Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, 
Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. So we talked about this last week, how Jesus goes berserk. He, he overturns the tables. He flips over the chairs. Uh, not literally. We looked at that AI picture last week. Jesus actually flipping over like a ninja. And uh, some of you this week, I was thinking about this, some of you were going to be around a Thanksgiving table and these kind of moments can be a little awkward where your uncle will say something political and you'll just like grab, and you're wondering, can I flip over the table at Thanksgiving this year? No, that's not allowed. That's just for Jesus. Uh, but uh, I want to talk a little more about the details and the context. Like, why did Jesus get mad? So this story takes place in what was called the Court of the Gentiles. So there are more courtyards in the temple. We're going to talk about that more next week. But these were sort of exclusive to like uh, more Israelites and priests. But the court of the Gentiles was the biggest part of the temple. And it was for people from all nations. Anybody could come and pray and connect with God. This was sort of the concept of Israel. It wasn't blessed to just be a blessing for itself. Israel was blessed to be a blessing for all nations. So why did Jesus get angry? Uh, Two reasons, two reasons. The first one is this, the money changers, the money changers. So every uh, uh, Israelite person had to pay a temple tax in this time. And so they would go to the temple. And when you uh, got in to pay that tax, you had to have the right kind of currency. And so you'd have to go to a money changer and you would exchange your currency for the right kind of currency. Uh, We can sort of think about it in our time. Like you go to certain stores And they're like, oh, we only take cash. And you're like, is this the 1800s? (laughs) Like, I haven't even seen cash in years. I don't know where to get a cash, right? Uh, But you would go to the money changer and they would exchange, but they would give you a surplus charge as a part of this exchange. And this surplus charge over the years have become outrageous, so much so that it was almost impossible for a working person to pay that surplus. So it was a way to uh, exploit the poor. So that was the first reason. The second reason uh, were these dove sellers. So in these days, of course, you had to bring an animal to sacrifice, which is weird for us. But in the ancient days, this this was normal. And the dove was a popular option for those who couldn't afford a different kind of animal. Now, here's the deal. In theory, You could uh, get a dove from your house. Maybe you have a dove guy that you know. And you could uh, get a dove for a very cheap, affordable rate and bring it into the temple. But the problem was it had to be uh, inspected and it had to be deemed clean. So it's sort of like when you go through a line at Disneyland, they expect your bags. You had to take it through and almost no animals made it through. So then you would have to buy in the temple a pre-inspected dove. Now, guess what? (laughs) That dove was not cheap in the temple. That dove was like uh, percentages more expensive in the courtyards than out. And we get that in our modern world, right? This is what happens at airports, at 49ers games. If you want to buy a drink and some snacks at 7-Eleven outside, it's like three bucks. But you go inside and like drinks are like $20. Uh, If you want to buy a meal for your family, you have to take out a small loan. It's like, it's unbelievable. And, and again, it was a way to exploit others. So Jesus sees this. 
And this is where his passion comes from. He says our phrase again. He says, this is not right. This was supposed to be a house for all nations. This was a place, the court of the Gentiles, for the most vulnerable people, the most desperate to meet God. This was the poor. This was the stranger, the different ethnicities, the disabled, the outcasts. It was supposed to be a place where they could connect with God and you are exploiting them and taking advantage of them. This is not right. Now, Jesus was a spiritual teacher, spiritual leader. He could have just given a talk. He could have taught about this. He could have offered some prayers. He could have stayed in a bubble with his disciples. He could have kept his robe clean, but he doesn't. He gets his hands dirty and he takes action. He takes action. Uh, makes me think about this old cartoon, uh, Popeye. Uh, you guys remember that cartoon? We recently showed our kids some YouTube clips of Popeye, and it doesn't exactly hold up like <laughs> I remembered when I was a kid. Uh, but what would happen with Popeye is he would be observing the bad guy, usually Bluto, who was like bullying other people. And at some point, Popeye would crack open a can of spinach and he would say this phrase, this is all I can stands and I can't stands anymore. And he'd get the spinach and he'd go take on Bluto. And I just love this image. Jesus says, I can't stand it anymore. He is outraged by the injustice. And so I want to talk about briefly uh, a topic that is throughout the Bible, the topic of justice. The topic of justice. Uh, because Jesus, uh, when he says these phrases, house of uh, prayer and den of robbers, he's actually quoting two Old Testament prophets. Uh, the first one, Isaiah, the second one, Jeremiah. And when he uses this phrase, den of robbers, it comes from Jeremiah 7. And I want to read right before this uh, den of robbers statement. We see this from the prophet Jeremiah. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly, one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, you, you do not go after uh, gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you. That word we used last week, abide. I will dwell with you in this place. So we see this reality that a house of prayer is not a house of prayer if it's not also a house of justice. It can't be one or the other, it's both. And this word justice can be a little controversial in the church world today, especially after 2020. Uh, but the reality is every human can understand justice to some level. Uh, so I want to I show you something I, I call the concentric circles of justice, okay? And this is trademark, so if you use this, and without my permission, I will sue you. Just saying. <laughs> That's stupid. Okay, uh, so concentric circles of justice. This is what I would say. The first circle is what we could call the what about me level of justice. Now, this is the level of justice that kids understand. My four-year-old son understands this clearly. Uh, right now at dinner, he has a hard time eating all of his food. And so we, uh, we bribe him. Uh, we don't call it bribes, though. We call it giving incentives because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Uh, 
but sometimes what will happen, the older kids understand the incentive system a little better. So they'll finish first and they will be eating their treats while Jude still has vegetables on the plate. And he'll say, that's not fair. Our phrase again, what? Uh, that's not right. This is the what about me level. Kids get this. When someone gets a present and they don't, when someone cuts in line, what about me? Now, unfortunately, some adults never get past this level. I'm not naming any names, but you can just watch some news and you can see leaders and politicians and celebrities that are still operating on this what about me level of justice. Now, if we go deeper, the next level is what we could call the what about them level of justice. When I was in junior high, I lived in a very segregated small town. And uh, at some point, my dad was helping coach my little league team. And, and after practice, he would help take some of my friends home. And as we would drive them home, we would literally cross a railroad track and get to a different part of the town. And what I started to observe is like, this is different than what I'm used to. I would see like the dilapidated governmental housing. Uh, one time, no joke, I, I observed a drug deal going on at this kid's house. And in my junior high brain, as we uh, let the kids off, I, I, I started understanding something's not right about this. For the first time, I had a shift where I didn't just ask, what about me? But I was asking, like, what about them? This isn't right. This can happen to us uh, when you go on like a mission trip or a serving trip and you get your awareness expanded. You see sisters and brothers facing injustices and you say, what about them? But then we get to another level. The third level is what we could call a whatever-it-takes level. And this is like the master level. This is driven by deep emotion. It's not anger, even though it might look like anger, but it's, it's driven by love. And Luke's depiction of Jesus turning over the tables, right before Luke paints this picture of Jesus by himself, and he's looking over the city, And he's praying with God. And what do we see Jesus doing? He's weeping. There are tears coming down his face. See, his his anger at the exploitation came from a deep, deep love and compassion for people. And he loved the world so much. What did he do? He gave his life. That's the master level of justice, whatever it takes to lay down your life to serve others. Back to Martin Luther King Jr., I've always been drawn to him. I've been inspired by him. My my grandpa and my great-grandpa were preachers, so I felt a kindred ship there. And in sixth grade, I actually dressed up like him, and I I memorized part of the I Have a Dream speech and gave it to my peers and now I'm, I'm a preacher as well, and so I feel that connection. But the reality is he was just way more than a preacher. He led people uh, to fight against injustice. And the day before he was assassinated, he gave a speech, and he referenced one of Jesus' most famous stories. He tells a story about these, this man who was exploited, and he was left for dead on the side of the road. And then there were two men that came that were dressed probably in immaculate robes, religious leaders, and they had important things to do. And so they left that man on the side of the road. And Martin Luther King says, maybe they asked the question, what would happen to me if I stop and help this person? 
Then he tells about uh, the third person, a Samaritan, someone of a different thought, a different ethnicity. And this person asked a different question. He asked the question, what would happen to them if I don't do anything? What would happen to them? And so this person gets their hands dirty. This person does whatever it takes, gives money, gives time to serve this person. And that's the question that we have to ask. Are, which person are we? And I feel like the target deeply on me as a religious leader. I read these stories from Jesus. and I have to ask hard questions. For me, do I exist just in a spiritual bubble? Do I just teach about this kind of stuff? Or am I willing to get my hands dirty? Uh, at the end of the speech, it's almost as if Martin Luther King Jr. has this premonition of what's about to happen. He says, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. Like anybody, I'd love to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as people will get to the promised land. The next day at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, uh, he was assassinated. But the movement of justice continued. He's a beautiful example of what it means to get our hands dirty, to do whatever it takes out of love to bring justice. This is the way of Jesus. This is what the early church was known for, and it's what we want to be known for today as a community, as highway. Not just a house of prayer, but a house of justice. And the reality is, I know this is already a value for our community. It's a value for many of you. Uh, Actually, in a few weeks, on December 13th, uh, we're going to have an Advent celebration where we're going to be making these Christmas tree kits that we're going to hand out to folks that we've been serving in, in RV lots in Mountain View and Palo Alto. And uh, each week, people from our community bring meals to people living there. And uh, on, on December 13th, we're going to hear from one of those residents, and we're going to understand how we can serve them more. Um, another thing going on, you might not even know about this, but at our Palo Alto campus in December, uh, we're going to partner with uh, one of our partners, Hotel de Zinc, we're, we're going to allow our campus to be used for a place for unhoused folks to stay and have a, have a warm place to stay. And we were talking about giving earlier. Uh, this is part of the why. Why do we give? Because we want to serve others around us. Uh, in the new year, we're going to talk about one of our partnerships with the uh, Buena Vista Mobile Home Lot, uh, where two teams from our very community Uh, from Highway operate a monthly food distribution program for them. So there's a lot of beautiful things happening you might not even know about. But beyond these these partners, we want this to be our heartbeat. We want to have our radars up looking for moments in our life where we would say, that's not right. That's not right. Where we would ask God, what do you want me to do about this? Where we look at our neighborhood And we would look at different kind of ethnicities, people different than us, and we would ask the question, what do you want us to do? We follow the passion like Jesus did. So I want to end our time this morning uh, talking about this paradox 
from the last two, two weeks. It's sort of a paradox and a dance, I would say, of being a house of prayer and a house of justice. It's not either or, but it's both and. See, what happens when we pray, like prayer is a risky endeavor because as we pray, our hearts start to beat like the heart of Jesus. We start to uh, be moved like him. We start to weep and have compassion for brokenness as we pray. And so the prayer then leads us to action, right? It leads us to movement. It leads us to taking steps to help and to actually do things. But uh, when it comes to action, uh, we get to another reality uh, that I, I can break down for a second. Uh, last spring, I, I opened my phone, and you, you all remember this. I, I read an article about an earthquake that had just hit, hit Turkey and Syria. As I was reading, I was looking at these numbers, uh, like over 50,000 people died, not to mention those who got injured and lost their, their house. As I'm reading about that, if I'm honest, uh, I had to turn off my phone. I didn't know what to do. I was exhausted. I, 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 was, I felt helpless. Has that ever happened to you where you're reading social media, you're looking at the news, and you hear about another tragedy, another injustice, and you just feel helpless? There's actually a phrase uh, for what happens uh, when this happens to us. It's called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. This is what can happen when we over-identify uh, or we just over-expose ourselves to brokenness and it, and it creates a sense of helplessness. I don't know what to do. It makes sense. Because as followers of Christ, we always come back to this reality that we are not God. It doesn't matter how, many, uh, how much action I take, I can't save the world. I can't fix the world. So for us, as followers of Jesus, it always comes back to surrender. We come back and we ask Jesus, we say, can you bring your kingdom to this earth? I don't know what to do. I'm lost. Can you make all things new? Can you restore this world? So it's this beautiful paradox and dance of prayer and action that leads us to prayer, that leads us to action, that leads us to prayer.